If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hello and welcome to F1 Nation with me, Natalie Pinkham, Tom Clarkson and Damon Hill. How are you chaps? Well, I'm okay. I've been working at the Goodwood Revival and so I didn't have a weekend off, but Tom had a weekend off after this gruelling triple header where Max Verstappen has basically just disappeared into the distance. It's not possible for Tom Clarkson to have a weekend off. I just don't believe it. (laughs) Well, that's the rumour. That is the rumour. I've had a lovely weekend off, but guys, okay, it was a pretty breathless triple header, but can you think of three better racetracks than Spa-Zanvo and Monza? That is, to me, what Formula One is all about. Three very different tracks... Very different challenges, but the same winner every time, right? <laughs> Max Verstappen, yeah. unstoppable. I seem to remember saying we're going into the mouth of the beast or something like that when I when I last did a podcast, and it was pre-Zanville, I think, and it had oh, Spa, I think, Spa. So basically, we've just been celebrating Max, but he, he really also did an amazingly good job in, in Monza as well, and he made it look so easy. Ferrari kind of tripping over themselves again. Well, Damon, do you remember? So we went into the summer break with Mattia Bonotto, the Ferrari boss, saying there is no reason why we can't win every race in the second half of this season. And yet we came back at Spa. Well, there, there is. There clearly <laughs> yes. is a reason. Is. And it's, it's Ferrari. <laughs> but I mean, the gap. Well, I suppose you're right, Natalie. Actually, it's Max, isn't it? It is Max, you know, and Red Bull. Yeah. The gap has grown. The gap has grown. I mean, Red Bull have done a fantastic job. And remember that they... Um, raised the right height of the cars at Spa and everyone was saying that's going to hurt the Red Bull more than any other car, yet they've managed to extend their gap. It's It's been quite extraordinary. And Ferrari seemed all lost at Spa. Then we went to, to Zandvoort where, I mean, yes, it looked better and the clerk started on the front row of the grid. And then we went to Monza where, yes, he was on pole, but actually all along... For me, there was never going to be a different result than Max Verstappen and Red Bull. Absolutely. And however far back he started, you were like, you know he's going to carve his way through, probably in the first couple of laps. He's not taking chances. He doesn't need to anymore. He's got he's got it all under control, hasn't he? Yeah, he's just so, not clinical isn't the right word, but he's just relaxed and driving brilliantly on the, on the you know top form. And at Zandvoort, you could see him using, putting the car absolutely on the very edge of the track on the on the entries that fast right hander at the top of the the back of the circuit where you crest a hill to actually keep your eye on the apex and keep and know exactly where the edge of your car is on the left hand side without putting a wheel on the sand because that's all there is at Zanville it's not grass it's sand I mean was incredible to watch well he does have confidence in both himself and the car to do that and I mean, I I always believe that Formula One is cyclical and this is his time. You know, we kind of get upset and bored with dominance of a driver, but actually what we should be doing is sitting back and appreciating it and enjoying it for what it is. This is his purple patch and this is his year. I mean, it's just, he's so calm under pressure. 
He's taking everything that's thrown at him, but he's got a brilliant car and a perfect mindset to drive it. Yeah, and he's got the perfect team behind him. And I include teammate in that. I think Checo Perez, he's looking a little bit browbeaten at the minute. I think, you know, if you think back to the start of the season, I mean, Pinks, do you remember us sitting down in um, Saudi Arabia and doing the pod there and Checo had put it on pole the day before and he was bright eyed and bushy tailed and we all thought we've got two serious challenges in that Red Bull, but actually they then developed the car a little bit more towards Max's liking, a little bit less understeer and Max hasn't looked back. And, you know, you say, how long is this Red Bull era going to last? I predict to the end of 2025. I really can't see it. You know, everyone's it'll it'll close up because when you get rule stability, that always happens. But I think such is their advantage now that the gap that the likes of Mercedes and now Ferrari, yes, Ferrari have got to close up is so huge over the winter that Adrian Newey and his team at Red Bull have only got to do an incremental improvement to still be light years ahead at the start of next year. Well, that's sort of the question I asked uh, Christian, actually. I think it was in Monza, uh, Tom. You know, I said, is this the start of... I mean, when they changed the regulations to the hybrid and Mercedes dominated for the whole of the era, um, effectively only losing at the final season of that regulations and then the new regulations, he's come in, or Red Bull have come in, on the right foot. Is this going to be their period of dominance? I mean, I'd, I'm I'm not so sure, because it, it's like it's quite close actually it's only a little bit you know mercedes have come out with a concept they might review that but they're all going to be able to look at what red bull are doing this year and and respond i think ferrari might do the same i i I don't know whether it's going to be so easy to dominate but definitely they've they started on the right foot yeah you're right damon this i mean this ferrari is a fast car so it's not as if they're behind in terms of performance as such Certain things, reliability, strategy, driver error, have all kind of mounted against them. So I think we probably have to just give more credit to Max. Well, Pinks, can I pick you up on that? I I don't agree wholeheartedly with what you've just said. I think the Ferrari is a good car. And then think back to the Australian Grand Prix earlier in the year when Charles was 40-odd points ahead of Max in the championship. But actually now, I think the Ferrari uses its tyres a little bit too much. And the only way they were able to put it on pole at Monza last time out was by using a very different wing, a very narrow wing. And um, and as a result, predictably, you know, they went backwards in the race because they used the tyres a little bit too much. So I think there is actually a huge car performance advantage in the Red Bull. And that is allowing Max to look so confident and so supreme isn't it in that everyone says oh you know max is a very different driver to last year and he absolutely is and prior to the italian grand prix he was telling us i don't need to win this race and he was bang on right he didn't need to win it but i think when you have such a car advantage it allows you to be a little bit more circumspect and i mean damon actually you know let's go back to 1996 when you have a car like that and your main rival is your teammate the way you dealt with Michael Schumacher in 1996 was very different to how you dealt with him in 1995. Yeah, he he was he'd gone to Ferrari and they needed to, de- to develop their car and you know he wasn't as competitive. He wasn't able to you know present quite as much a threat. Although he did finish quite close to me across the line as I became champion in in at the end of the race at the end of uh, Suzuka in 96. But uh, he was there and he went on to dominate. As you say, we had another era of domination where Ferrari and the whole Ross Braun 
John Todd and Michael Schumacher team basically took Ferrari to another level and started winning absolutely everything for quite a few years to the point where everyone got bored watching, which wasn't good. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it kind of, it got a little bit too much, didn't it? His domination. But, you know, when you've got what the fans want, what we want, we want racing. We, it's great to see someone at the top of their form. I mean, if you think about Jim Clark, you know, people used to marvel at his ability. But, you know, he, he used to be quite a long way in the lead a lot of the time and um, and, some, and make everyone look silly. And, and it's incredible to watch, but it's, it's only so long you can watch one guy win. And uh, the, the same happened, I think, with, with Jackie Stewart and, and the Tyrrell. You know, he was uh, dominant. I can remember going to Monza when I was a lad and my dad took me there and uh, I was about 11 years old, 12 years old, right at the height of Jackie Stewart's dominance. And I'd literally sit in the grandstand. They'd plonk us in the grandstand and tell us to wait for the race to be over. And about an hour and a half, we'd, we'd watch Jackie Stewart go past and then about half a minute later, everyone else would come past. So it wasn't very interesting to watch. But um, it's great to look at Max as you say, as this, now he's a world champion, driving as a world champion, instead of driving as someone who's trying desperately to become a world champion. He knows this is in the bag. He's going for the longest winning streak. Was it Vettel has got the longest winning yep. streak? So he can crack... 2013, yeah. Well, he can crack that record. And then once you start thinking about records, you suddenly realise you're into a different league altogether, aren't you? You know, you're in the Lewis Hamilton Schumacher uh, league of breaking the rules of the sport by the most wins or the most dominance and that, you know, uh, and I think that's a motivation. What I would love to see is Max and Lewis fighting again this year. How has that championship really changed Max, the racing driver? And just imagine if we had uh, as close a championship this year as we did last year, would Max have fought in the same way? Would Silverstone, would we have had a repeat of Silverstone, a repeat of Monza? Would he have Brazil turn four, push, you know, how, how different would last year have been with the 2022 Max Verstappen? We'll never know, but it's, it's an interesting thought. No, it's interesting. We've talked about this before, about how he races differently with Charles to Lewis. And I think that is partly because he has grown up with Charles. They do know each other incredibly well. Uh, they're from the same generation of drivers. But I also am so interested in Damon's point, that shift in mindset when you are a world champion. Uh, or did you make that point, Tom? Sorry, did I just steal it? <laughs> sure, it I'll take the credit. <laughs> yeah. the, but it, it is different. The way that he drives, but it's just an evolution, isn't it? It's just experience. He's just he's growing up and he's learning and he's um, he's enjoying his racing. And it's great to see. And again, hop back to the original point, which is let's just step back and, and take it all in because it won't last forever. But whilst it does, it's impressive. I was looking back because we've got the Singapore Grand Prix coming up in a couple of weeks. And I was looking back and I, th I suddenly thought, I can't remember what happened in last year in Singapore. Of course, there wasn't one last year. There wasn't one year before that either. So you go back to 2019 and you look at a rerun of 2019 and you go, you're going, wait a minute, Sebastian Vettel in a Ferrari winning the race, Charles Leclerc in a second and, and Lewis not actually winning and dominating. Did that really happen? You know, and Max is there in the mix, but I don't think he was on the podium. We may have been on the podium, but um, that is only a few years ago. So things do change. And, and if you stand still for a second in Formula One in this sport, you are going to be swamped. You'd, you're literally going to sink into quicksand. So the pace for anyone, even if they're winning, the pressure is relentless. Um, but, um, you know, I had, I had Adrian Newey. They did a celebration at 
the Goodwood Revival of 60 years since my dad won the World Championship in 1962 in a BRM. Uh, but they brought along all the cars that my dad was, many of they could, of the cars that my dad raced in. And Adrian Newey bought his Lotus 49. So Adrian, he's, he's having a weekend off driving racing cars, but, you know, that's Red Bull. That's their key man. And there he is in a Lotus 49 going around uh, a Goodwood Revival. They're- How hard was he pushing? Christian said to him, Adrian, don't get out of second gear, please. He wanted to go a lot faster than we were allowed to um, because it was only supposed to be a parade. But, um, you know, if they don't do any more development now on this car, I think Ferrari, you know, Ferrari and Mercedes will will be all over them by the time you get to Abu Dhabi. I also think the cost cap um, will actually limit the other team's ability to respond, won't it? I think actually there's only so much that Mercedes and Ferrari can do now. I think it probably won't close. I think they're all going to wait and hope to make the big step over the winter because they've all spent their development budget. I think, was it was it to, to Sky on in Monza where Christian Horner said that our development budget this year is 8 million, down from about 50 pre-cost cap? That is a massive swing. You know, when you consider what Ferrari have already brought to the table, what Mercedes have brought to the table, I think the focus now obviously is to get the most out of the package at each race. But in terms of developments, it's all about 2023 now. Although Alpine are saying they're bringing this massive floor development. They expect to see great results in both Singapore and Suzuka. So it hasn't entirely stopped. Well, it just depends what you did earlier in the year, doesn't yeah. it? And obviously Alpine were a little bit quieter maybe in that respect earlier in the year. But Damon was talking about pressure and thinking of Ferrari. Did you guys pick up on um, what John Elkin, the president and CEO of Ferrari said prior to Monza in an interview with Gazetta de la Sport. I don't know if you saw it. Enlighten us. Well, there were two things that stood out for me. Drivers, first of all, he said, we do want to win the world championship in the next few years. And Charles Leclerc is in pole position to do that for us. No mention of Carlos Sainz at all in what he said. And I, I felt sorry for Carlos. I thought it was very conspicuous the omission of Carlos Sainz from from John Elkin. Yeah, but to your point, Tom, I think, sadly, that that is the common perception of it. Pinks, as the big boss, you'd hope that he would have come down uh, on the side of both of his drivers. But he also said, we make too many mistakes. I think that's and that's what a leader should do. There's no secret of that, is there? No, I think I think it's I think one of the problems is when you've got an organisation that is if it's trying to protect the organisation, it's no good if the outside world is saying all these things because they can patently see that those that those things are going on. And the guy who's the head of the organisation is going, no, there's nothing going on. I mean, Matteo Bonotto is obviously trying to protect the team from pressure, but it takes the guy at the top to say, listen, we can all see what's really going on. This is not good enough. It's got to be better. And the fact of the matter is, Charles Leclerc, in sheer pace, is the lead guy. And Carlos has done a great job, but he still hasn't dominated uh, Charles, has he? I mean, it's a bit like Sergio, you know, but, he, but they're very they're very good team, the pair of them. Carlos was actually pretty quick at Monza, I thought. There was times when he was good, but he's going to have to go up another level, isn't he? to put Charles in the shade. And so that's a fair point. If you're going up into battle against Max Verstappen and Red Bull, you've got to put your best guys forward. You're not going to not hurt people's feelings because you just there isn't time for that in Formula 1. I thought it was tough but fair. You know, I think it was tough but fair. And I think, you know, I think it was at the right time without putting masses of pressure on Ferrari. They already had enough, you know. Um, and also being on pole position with Charles, you know, it was, um, uh, you know, it was... 
and it was it could only go horribly wrong, couldn't it? I just felt that that horrible feeling about it. But isn't it awful that that's what we go into races? It's like Charlotte Monaco. You're like, oh no, not again. I mean, when Michael was winning, I used to say, you know, you'd put you bet your house on him winning. You would you would go into race, you go, this team, the way they operate, the way he drives, you'd bet your house on. Well, much like we race. are with Max at you the moment. You wouldn't do that right now with Ferrari. No. You, you might do it with Max, as you say. Yeah. And you did it with Lewis. Yeah. This is an interesting one, though, because as we go into the flyaways again and finish the European season, certainly earlier this year, the three of us talked a lot about it being track-specific and the fact that every racetrack offers up different characteristics and different teams will therefore shine. And the point you made right at the beginning of this podcast, Tom, was that those three circuits offered... A bit of everything, and Max was able to deliver at every single one of them. We now go to Singapore, which which is another challenge again. The drivers often cited as the toughest physical challenge of them all. David, as you say, we haven't been there for three years. It's a very bumpy track. You think, well, what's this going to throw up? But really, your gut feeling is Max will be fine. I was surprised that Ferrari didn't do better at Zandvoort because I thought they, their car seemed to be the kind of car that is good at higher downforce, you know, tight twistier circuits, but which is might apply to Singapore. And it's good on the good on the bumps as well. I think that Max still can't quite take the curbs in the same way. And you might you might find a lot of time in Singapore over the curbs. So Ferrari could be more competitive again there. But we shall see is the only thing I can say. I think a lot of it's down to what tires they turn up with because these, you know, Mercedes have had problems heating up their tyres, whereas the, prob- the opposite problem for Ferrari is they, they overcook their left front, don't they? So let's be honest, he's like you just said, he has dominated this season. Once he's found his mojo and they adjusted the car slightly to suit him, Max has been almost unstoppable and unbeatable, but we shall see. OK, Damon, what are the odds of Max winning every single race now until the end of the season? He's now going for the longest winning streak, so... What have what we got to say there? Is it totally impossible that he can win every race between now and the end of the season? No, you can't say that. I mean, McLaren nearly won every single race except for Monza, wasn't it? Uh, they won 15 out of 16 races. Uh, it was because I think Ayrton Senna tripped over Jean-Louis Schlesser, you know, Williams. Uh, and you're too good. You're too good. Oh, is that, I, yeah. I got that right. Yeah. And you know why I got that right? It's because I tripped over Ayrton Senna in the same chicane. <laughs> In <laughs> Williams, <laughs> only he tripped over to me. That's the way I. That's the way I remember it anyway. But I went on to win the race. The difference was that. <laughs> anyway, winning streaks, yes, and also Mr. Consistency. He used to be called Mr. Saturday. Natalie, you have got something you want to tell us on that. Well, I, I'm just interested to know what our listeners think about Mercedes winning a race this year. I mean, can you believe that we're sitting in September saying? Will Mercedes win a race this year? And George's stats, I mean, are seriously impressive. So one second, six thirds, five fourths, three fifths and one DNF. The races he's finished, he's never finished outside the top five yet to secure that elusive win. But can you see it happening? It's amazing, isn't it? So is that more podiums than Lewis Hamilton this year? It is, isn't it? George Russell has scored... That was seven, wasn't it, that you just mentioned? And Lewis, I know, has scored six. More podiums than Lewis Hamilton. Who would have bet on that prior to the no start one. of the year? I wouldn't have done that. I mean, I mean yeah, it's incredible. He's, he's, he's really, really... You know, you come into F1, if you come into F1 and you get a big 
crack and at it and you come into a big team like that he has definitely held its head way above water uh, this season so pretty solid yeah, 35 points yeah. ahead of him in the championship if as you guys were just saying Max is favourite for every race who's second favourite I mean you go to Singapore that's that hasn't been a great race for Mercedes in the past has it it was I remember when they were winning everything even in those days it was a bit of a bogey track for them now I know it's completely different regulations now um, but I would imagine they're going to Singapore a bit nervous and then you go to Suzuka I mean I see the Red Bull being absolutely amazing at Suzuka ditto actually Austin that fast sector one Mexico Red Bull have a great record there Interlagos Abu Dhabi yeah it's going to be difficult for Mercedes, isn't it? Well, M Mercedes are saying publicly that they are targeting a race win this season and their goal is to beat Ferrari to second place in the championship. So they've set themselves pretty clear targets. They're 35 points behind Ferrari in the Constructors' Championship. So that's very doable for Mercedes. They've got reliability. I mean, I know you said there's one DNF for, for George, but the car has been pretty bulletproof. Well, that was the crash at Silverstone, wasn't it? Of course. Yes, at turn one. So the car has been bulletproof. And yeah, I mean, that, that would be a bad result. When you consider how fast the Ferrari was earlier in the year, for the, if they then finished third, which is where they finished last year, let's not forget, that's that would be a bad result for Ferrari. And I think John Elkin would be having another, another interview at, with Gazetta, wouldn't he, at the end of the year? What would he be saying? I told you so. I warned you. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not going to be. We're laughing because we're not in that situation. But believe me, when you're in that situation in the sport, you know, and it is, the pressure is enormous from the media, from people like us. But we're still asking the question, can Mercedes win a race? I think there's a possibility. Something will happen. It always We always get a crazy race. Somewhere between now and the end of the year, there's going to be a crazy race and Mercedes could well pick up that win. So that would that would basically scupper Max's chances of winning every single race till the end of the season. But we'll see, there's going to be rain. One of them's going to be wet. Well, we know it's Suzuka. It's going to be wet. <laughs> you know? Exactly. For me, Ferrari and Mercedes have done exact opposite of each other so Ferrari started brilliantly and then they've just lost their way whereas Mercedes started badly and have started to get back into the competitive order um, and are looking the trajectory looks more positive wouldn't you say? Yeah they've got the weight of the entire nation I mean literally Ferrari I saw some banner or something it basically is Ferrari in Italy the same thing you know the, the fans when you go to Monza you see these Ferrari fans turn up that Italy and Ferrari it means the same thing it's almost as big as Italy Ferrari it's no, it's not looking you're not looking at the other way around so that's the kind of level of importance Ferrari is um to to Italy it's it's the defining characteristic of the country so that's the pressure that that doesn't apply to any other team so that is Ferrari's headache should we talk about Alpines they are having some kind of shootout for the second seat they're running a test at the Hungara Ring, pre-Singapore, where the rumoured names taking part include Antonio Giovinazzi, Nick de Vries, Jack Doohan, Colton Herter, even Sebastian Vettel's name has been thrown in the mix. Well, we can rule out a few of those, can't we? I mean, Nick de Vries seems he's either going to go to Williams or Alpha Tauri. Herter isn't going to get the necessary 40 super licence points. Which so. is another whole podcast hot topic, debate hot topic 
Oscar Piastri, by the way, is now out of that picture. He's got his drive. He's now going to be at McLaren. So we know that one. That's that's done. Which leaves the question of where does Dan Ricciardo go? Is he going to do this test with Alpine, you think? They've been fairly explicit in the fact that they won't sign him, which I just think is madness. And I know you're going to say I'm biased, but at the end of the day, if you're digging around and trying to bring in Giovinazzi back on the grid for a test... Um, and even Sebastian Vettel, who's already said he's going to retire, so I don't get that at all. But it begs the question why Daniel Ricciardo has been publicly ruled out of going to that seat when he has publicly said that he would go back there. And it feels, with all due respect to that list of names that we've heard, a strange thing that you would exclude someone of Daniel's quality. I suppose it may be an element of swallowing pride and ego because he left the team. I suppose it may be a bit about understanding whether his struggles at McLaren have been about adaptation to the car or genuine loss of ability and mojo. And that is surely impossible to fully answer without another run out in the car. Completely agree. He deserves a run out. To suggest that Antonio Giovinazzi comes back in and you've got an eight-time race winner and Daniel Ricciardo, who, by the way, knows the team albeit there's been personnel changes there. I mean, I just thought it was so interesting that uh, that Lewis and, and various drivers, you know, widespread support for Daniel across the grid, saying, of course this guy has to stay mm. in the sport. And, and why would you test? And Alpine, it feels like it's... Well, it, I mean, why would you test when you know you've got a talented guy right there who could lead the team? Because actually, if you end up with Ocon and Gasly, both strong drivers, neither shout to me like a leader. Maybe they will grow into the role given the opportunity, I don't know. But all the feedback from McLaren has always been that Daniel gives incredible feedback. He just can't quite extract the performance from the car that Lando can. Yeah, and I think also tests are very, they're imperfect ways of of checking whether or not someone's what you want. But maybe they want to reacquaint themselves with him. And it's as much about vibe it's as much about when the guy walks into the garage how the mechanics respond to them how the engineers respond to this person whether they can generate as you say this magic quality this leadership quality in a team and engender them as it is about sheer pace you know sheer pace can be you know if you just went on sheer pace it can be very misleading especially at a test because it's not easy to say at a test who was quick how many times do we go to winter testing and suddenly you know the Haas is quickest and, and you think well you're going to win the world championship of course to get to the first race it's nothing like that a test is a day long driving around a circuit where the conditions are changing all the time how do you compare like with like you put in a guy next day it's a totally different story he could go faster Damon I think the engineers can see a lot more can't they they can see a lot more through the data so I think you you, you would definitely benefit you know back to backing Antonio Giovinazzi and Daniel Ricciardo to see who's doing what and why let's go back to Michael Schumacher's first test for Jordan he did about five laps and their eyebrows went up and they got on the phone straight away to Eddie and said, what the hell is going on? You know, this car's never gone this fast before. So it can be done that a guy suddenly ignites everyone's interest just with a few laps. But that was Michael Schumacher. Damon, I don't know what vibe you got in Monza, but I definitely felt that Jack Doohan angle was, was gaining traction. I think, yes, you know, he's an Alpine young driver. He's won races in Formula 2. Uh, yeah. He's getting stronger and stronger. He's had a very, very strong second half of the year in Formula 2. The, the progression curve is very steep, isn't it? 
But of course, we haven't mentioned Nick de Vries's amazing hurling into the limelight, a kind of star is born moment uh, because he got the phone call, didn't he, with uh, Alex's, you know, terrible shock uh, appendicitis thing. And But Nick dropped himself in that car, having driven another car, the Aston Martin the day before. So you had to kind of, you know, it's like rubbing your tummy and patting your head and then suddenly having to you know, rub your head and tap, pat your tummy. You know, it, 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 there's switches are all in different places, but he did an amazing job. So he has underlined his credentials. And basically, you cannot ignore Nick de Vries now as a future Formula One driver. So interesting about Nick de Vries, because Paul Dressa and I were talking to him in Spa, saying with Anthony Davidson as well, actually. And saying, you know, what's the future looking like? He said, I just, I just don't know. I don't know. And yeah. it felt he's 26 as if maybe, you know, the chances have passed him by. My goodness, doesn't it just show what can happen? The craziness of this sport. Who could have predicted that, A, those awful things happened to Alex? I can't believe that, by the way. That was scary stuff for Alex Albon. Um, we wish him well. As you say, De Vries parachuted in, did an incredible job and really has turned... <laughs> now he's got the pick of the teams. Has has actually arguably got more options than Daniel Ricciardo now. It's kind of craziness. But Pinks, just think about, you know, there is one race this year, really, where you'd want to get your debut in the Williams and it was at Monza because that thing is yeah. really slippery, yeah. lacks downforce. It was the one race where, where that you had was the actually going to go quite well. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas imagine if it'd been at Monaco and he'd qualified, a, you know, done a brilliant job and qualified 17th. The stars were aligned. Going back to your Jack Doohan point, I would find that fascinating because Lauren Rossi has gone on record saying he's actually considering bringing an end to the F1 Academy after the Piastri saga. Clearly had his fingers burnt with it and basically saying, what is the point of us growing talent only to get it poached? What is the point of us investing our money in drivers and then others saving their money by not doing that level of investment and using that money to come in and buy them off them? So if they do recruit Jack Doohan, it will be, um, well, it will be a sign that the academy hasn't been completely wasted. Well, and there's one name we haven't mentioned in the Young Driver saga, and that is Logan Sargent, Williams' third driver, who is going to be doing FP1 for them in Austin. He's a race winner in Formula 2, family from Miami, I think. And he is now being linked very seriously to that second Williams. Logan Sargent strikes me as someone who's very quick. He's quite intense. He really wants it. He really wants it. There's a ferocious competitor in there and he's getting an FP1 run out for Williams at, at Austin. And he's now in pole position to get that seat alongside Alex Albon next year. And we're going to have an American on the grid ready for those three races in the US next year. But this brings me on to my next question. At the beginning of the year, we heard about these mandatory runs that the teams had to give to junior drivers in pre free practice sessions. Am I right in thinking that plenty of teams haven't done it yet they're gonna to have to pack them in before the season's well, out i think it was a case of everyone wanting to get their heads around the new regulations and therefore they wanted that the race drivers to to maximize their the, the car time for the race drivers but yeah you're right pinks i mean a lot of uh, teams haven't i mean red bull funnily enough have they gave yuri vips a run out in barcelona and Alpha Tauri have given Liam Lawson a run, but I mean, I think of Ferrari. I can't think they've done anyone yet. I think Robert Schwartzman. So he's getting a run out in Austin. Then uh, Mercedes have given Nick De Vries a run, but there's a, definitely another 
uh, run for them to do. And Aston Martin, if you speak uh, to Fries. Yeah. Alpine, McLaren. Yes. So it's going to be packed in at these at these last races of the year. It's a great thing, though. I love the idea of young drivers getting uh, an hour on a Friday morning to, to get used to yeah. it. It's created this discussion that we've just been having about all these talented drivers who are out there who are just you know, dying to get into F1 and they're trying to find a way. And all the current F1 drivers are now made abundantly aware that they are on notice and there's always someone willing to take their seat uh, at the drop of a hat. So it's it, the pressure builds on current F1 drivers, but we, there's only 20 seats. Well, another talking point I'd love to dive into is the appointment of my namesake, Natalie Robin, as the new CEO of the FIA. That's exciting news. Funnily enough, I first got wind of um, this much, much earlier in the season. And I was thinking, gosh, when are we going to get the announcement? Is it still happening? But sure enough, she has uh, only last week it became official. And I think it's fantastic news for the FIA to have a CEO, something that they haven't had before. And she comes with a whole load of automotive experience. She's worked at Volvo, Nissan, Daimler, Chrysler, but she's never worked in motor racing before. So I, <laughs> good luck, Natalie. I mean, Formula One is unique. It will not be like anything you've done before, but by all accounts, she's a hugely capable woman and uh, all those team principals better watch out. And actually, Tom, I want to say that our sport needs a strong FIA. I think that there's been a degrading of the FIA over time because I think when Bernie ran it, he basically didn't want to have, and the teams, they didn't want too much interference, but it's a sport and it's not a sport unless it has a strong FIA because they make the rules and their job is to apply the regulations that mean that there's more chance of people succeeding and, and also things that have gone wrong in the sport shouldn't happen you know, and, and drivers get a fair chance. And it's really important that they're there and effective and can match the power and weight of Formula One and also of uh, of the teams and other you know influences because that's that's without them it's not a sport. I mean they're there also to impl- implement safety as well and they do an amazing job on that and you know a lot of the stuff would never have got through if they hadn't been strong enough and 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 fought on safety grounds and uh, we've got lots of lives that have been saved because of what they've done. But and far as the regulations go, I think they still need we still need work there to keep to make it still um, a fair sport, a fair and open sport. Well, I think one thing that would bridge the gap between the sport and the fans is a, a level of transparency, clarity, a very sort of clearly defined role for Natalie, and I think she could be the person to do that. And I and I think it's 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 healthy because there's quite a lot of confusion often. You know, I'm only thinking last time out in Monza about why it finished under the safety car. Questions are asked and there doesn't seem to be people directly answering them. And perhaps if we have um, those kind of roles carved out, it just adds to the, the, the transparency and therefore the trust between the fans and the sport. Yeah, it's a big, big area. Brilliant point, well made. Yeah, definitely. Questions, please. Damon Hill, do you think it's time maybe you should change your approach to racing? <laughs> well, I don't know even how to start answering that question, but anyway. It's the Williams leading, Damon Hill. Some more questions, please. Damon, were you happy with the start? Damon Hill, congratulations for this winning, Damon. You must be satisfied. Any questions? Yeah. Well, Damon, it must have been absolutely gutting that last couple of laps. Damon, it looked like you had it really under control. Some more questions, please. Damon Hill has done a fantastic job. 
Okay, it's that time again. It's Ask Damon. Come on then, let's hear it. What have we got this time? Hi, Damon. This is Zoe from Canada. I'm super curious about Pirelli, the data that they gather about tires and how that data is used to generate the potential tire strategies that Pirelli publishes prior to the race, as well as how the teams use that information that Pirelli provides to them. Thank you. Well, Zoe, um, yeah, it's obviously they're in a position, Pirelli, to know exactly what's going on with everyone. Now, Tom, you can tell me whether or not that information is made available across teams. I think they have to keep the data. Uh, if they're talking to Mercedes and they can tell Mercedes, well, that your tyre wear is, you know, this, that and the other. The teams also do their own tyre wear measurements as well. So, But obviously, Pirelli are in a position to see how different teams, different cars use their tyres, which is useful information to another team. So I'm, I'm presuming they keep that confidential, don't they, Tom? So the, the information is pulled and then you get averages. So Pirelli will, you know, you'll be able to see that the soft tyre on any given weekend has lasted on average X number of laps. The medium tyre's done this, the hard tyre's done something else. So the teams, you, you then get an idea of what the pit lane is going through with these tyres and then of course the teams make their own conclusions from that. They then start looking at pit stop strategies but bear in mind I remember James Vowles the um, strategist at Mercedes saying that there are something like three million different strategies that they're working through before any given Grand Prix. It's quite extraordinary so so in a way you know that, that it's that, it's really that, complicated. We haven't got time for yeah. three million strategies. We're not going to go through all of those. So the data is pulled and then the teams, it just gives everyone a general idea of what others are experiencing. And they publish that as well. So you can get that information on the F1 app, I think, um, it, which I do before race, just to see what Pirelli are saying in general about what the options are and what the likely tyre stop windows are. But that's not a fixed, hard and fixed rule because teams will go... We're going to gamble or we're going to do something like, let's say, Fernando Alonso in Monaco, where he went really, really slowly and, and eked out another life out of his set of tyres. And, and so, you know, it is still an option for drivers to do and teams to do, do their own thing. But certainly some tyres will not make it to the end of the race. And Pirelli will sometimes say, we do not, we will not want you going any further than a certain amount because you'll be down to the canvas and the tyre could explode. So, you know, there is a safety limit as well. But um, yeah, they're in a hard position, Pirelli. They've got to produce a tyre that degrades to make the racing interesting, but one that is durable, that is safe as well. So being a tyre provider for Formula 1 is it's an invidious position to be in. Uh, you're getting the, the benefit and also all the blame. But Zoe, it's also worth mentioning that from a Pirelli point of view, there's a couple of really interesting races coming up for them in Suzuka and Austin, where FP2 at both of those races is going to be prolonged by half an hour. And they're going to do some 2023 tyre testing in that last half an hour of FP2 at both of those races. So that data will only be, be kept to themselves. But um, I don't know why I've offered that, really. It's got nothing to do with your question, only that it's an interesting Pirelli fact for you. That... I liked it. Oh, did you? <laughs> See, it's not just Ask Damon, it's Ask TC. These little gems, We're all eh? the team. Yeah. Natalie, you're, you're, you're going to be dragged into the next question. All right, well, let's hear it. Hi, Damon. My name is Tom. I live in Saffron Walden near Cambridge. And my question is, I'd like to know to what extent you think winning that second world championship 
would have positively or perhaps even negatively impacted your life. I'm guessing it wouldn't have been that negative, but I'd like to know nevertheless. Thanks very much. Enjoy the show. Bye. All right, Pink's over to you. <laughs> what a question. What would it have, what difference would it have made? Well, I don't know. Probably not as much as the first one or the difference between winning one and not winning one. I think definitely one in the bag uh, is the, is the big one. You know, once you get one down, then you're, you're a world champion forever. And if you're with you, you know, I meet drivers who've won two, three, seven world titles and are they any better than me mm, yes they are but uh but they're better <laughs> they are better only because of the numbers but i think once you're in the world championship club then uh then that's as that's pretty much the job done once you're a champ you're always a champ did you get a massive win bonus from frank williams um not that i remember and you'd think if i'd got one i would remember it tom but i got you know i got a smile i can smile and a you know and a, a a well done yeah <laughs> And I got fired. <laughs> so that was my prize. <laughs> on, your, on your way. You've got your championship now. On your bike. <laughs> Hope that answers your question, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for all your questions. Keep them coming. We love hearing them. Make sure you record your questions on an audio file and email them to askdamon at f1.com. Well, that's about it, isn't it? It's lovely to see you both again. And you, Pinkle. It's been a great chat. I've loved it. It's brilliant. Listeners, we've had to edit this down, this version, because we, or this, this edition, because we've been chatting way more than we've actually been able to squeeze into the show. So we'll have to come back and do it again. And we'll do just that because we'll be back on Monday, the 26th of September, as we look ahead to the Singapore Grand Prix. Thank you for listening. F1 Nation is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. 